As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to the latest edition of the Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined, as always, by my colleague Stuart Mandel. And Stu, we just had a real sporting event happen over the weekend, and it really ties into the sport we love the most, and that is college football. The NFL draft happened. Uh, we're going to get into a lot of that, as well as take get through the mailbag a little bit and talk about some other stuff, including Stu's updated kind of after fr- spring football, uh, or not spring football, top 25 for whenever we get to the 2020 season. But Stu, okay, what was your biggest takeaways from watching the draft in its different format as it was this weekend? You know, I went into it, I guess, with low expectations and thinking this is going to be kind of a low-rent, almost Wayne's World-type broadcast, but, you know, we'll, what other choice do we have? And and it, it never would have occurred to me that doing it this way would in many ways be more entertaining, more compelling than the way the draft has always been done. There was something cool about seeing uh, not just Roger Goodell in his basement, but like seeing all these coaches and GMs at home with kids running around. And uh, it's... It's like we have this image in our head of coaches who don't have an outside life. They just they spend all day at the office and like, hey, it turns out they're real people with families whose uh, whose whose kitchen tables look like yours, and you know uh, they're normal, they're human beings. And to me, that was probably the coolest thing. I mean, I know like you still had Jerry Jones' yacht and Cliff Kingsbury's mansion, whatever you want to call that. But there were a lot of other moments where, I mean, Zach Taylor, the Bengals coach, looked like he was just like somebody put a desk in the corner of the of the finished basement. Like they just it 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 made for more, I guess, genuine uh, shots than in a typical draft when it's so let's let's go to the war room and like every single war room is just a bunch of dudes around a long table and it looks exactly the same. 
Yeah, I think that that part of it is well said. There was something that felt a little more unique this time because everything else just feels like it's become a little bit cliche. Uh, from the actual draft, what surprised you? Um, well, I think the first round, for the most part, was was pretty uneventful. It made me wonder if the lack of pro days and, and other opportunities to evaluate these guys made the teams mostly kind of play it safe. Um, I saw where, you know, I'm of the stars, like the Ari Wasserman stars matter camp. And I saw that I think it was probably the most correlation we've seen yet of five stars and four stars getting drafted. And that probably speaks to that a little bit as well. But, uh, Obviously, the the wrinkle in round one, I think, was Jordan Love going to the Packers, and in, on two fronts, one wasn't I was not under the impression Aaron Rodgers will be done anytime soon, and also Jordan Love is a guy who, I guess, a little bit like Josh Allen in that um, people are enamored with his physical tools, but then you look at his stats from last season when the new coaching staff came in, and it's like, to me, how can you? How how is this guy of all guys the guy you see as being Aaron Rodgers' successor? Yeah, it's that part's interesting. I thought what also was interesting about the Packers side of it was they were really close to a Super Bowl and they need receivers. This draft is loaded receivers, and they didn't take any wide receivers. So uh, we'll see how this works out for them. I mean, Daniel Jeremiah from the NFL Network, who we've had on here a bunch, and I think he's the best uh, draft guy in the media by far. He said Jordan Love had the best arm talent of anybody in this draft, which is saying something when you had Justin Herbert and you had some other guys who can really fire the ball, but he can do a lot a lot of, a lot of things with the ball. It, but as you said, he went from being really terrific in 2018 with with Dave Yost and Matt Wells to really struggling uh, under the new coaching staff at Utah State the next year. And he was a guy that I think a lot of people thought might end up leaving as a as a grad transfer. Um, he didn't. And he came into the NFL. And, you know, look, he's he, it, for him it's a good situation because he can learn behind Aaron Rodgers. He doesn't have to play right away. He's on a really good team. And I think that rather than get thrown into the middle of things where everybody's counting on you right away, I think that gives him a chance to develop and get settled in. The one I'm most interested in, or one of the ones I guess I'm most interested in, is Justin Herbert going number six to the Chargers. And I like Justin Herbert a lot. I think he's definitely got all the tools on paper. The part I'm wondering about is we did a bunch of his games over the last couple of years and more times than not you kind of came away underwhelmed and to see him carry on a franchise especially one that has been so shouldered by philip rivers um that's going to be a that's going to be a uphill climb for him so are you buying justin herbert as a franchise quarterback with the with the chargers or not we talked about this you so we did our group text with andy the night of the draft and i think the consensus was we're not that we're not at, it's not that I'm totally down on him it's it's kind of exactly what you said in watching him and he he's one of these guys that played a lot had a lot of starts throughout college and I was at his USC game this year where he played really well uh, I was at the Pac-12 title game and that was more the CJ Verdell show like he had his moments there's no question about it but he had a lot of other times over his career 
where you came away from it going, why is this guy so hyped? I don't, I don't get it. So um, I think if he had gone like in the late first round, you wouldn't think much of it. But when you go number six, there's an expectation that, yes, you're going to be the franchise quarterback, possibly an all-pro. Uh, harder for me to see that. I was just glad the Dolphins didn't overthink it and took Tua because, to me, we've talked about this before, like, he, you know, you want to talk about arm talent. It's him. Uh, injury issues aside, he's the real deal, and I think the Dolphins would have really regretted it if they had passed on him given that they need the quarterback. Um, speaking of quarterbacks, a lot of talk during the draft was about Jake Fromm and him sliding all the way to the fifth round. And I don't think he was ever, you know, you and I talk about how the, a lot of the, when you talk about a guy's stock dropping or rising during his career, it's like, well, what was that based on in the first place? That, that was never real. We don't know if an NFL team ever thought Jake Fromm was a top 10 or even first round talent. But I also don't think you would have, going into last season, when he had led his team to the national title game as a freshman, had a really good sophomore year, you would have you would never have guessed he'd 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 be a fifth rounder the next year. It just speaks to how disappointing his junior season was. Um, you know, during the season, the thing about college football season is it moves so quick that you don't really have time to like in the moment. It's harder to analyze it than after the fact. And I think in the moment we were like, I know I was just like, man, he's. He just doesn't have the receivers. Um, Georgia doesn't have any good receivers this year, and so he's really struggling. But, you know, you look back at it now, and, and you go, well, there have been plenty of good quarterbacks who didn't have great receiving cores, and it didn't cause their production to drop that badly. We had this conversation about Jake Fromm and, the, and maybe his overstocked by some, some mock draft people, though, last, last summer, I remember. Um, somebody I really trust who's plugged in around Georgia had – been spot on about this early on and I mean I, I wrote about this in my column on Sunday on The Athletic about kind of the narrative here because it tied into a couple of things that were interesting to see how they were kind of woven together and I think with Fromm um, first of all he was never going to be a guy who was going to wow people in Indy I mean he ran you know five flat 40 he doesn't have great size he has a very underwhelming throwing arm. I think when people looked at the talent that was around him, he was a good college quarterback. He's a really good college quarterback. But, and he had success early on, as you, as you mentioned. To me, the guy he was most similar to was, is Matt Barkley. Matt Barkley is not going to wow anybody with his physical tools. He played a lot. He played on a high-profile program. Remember, at one point, people were touting Matt Barkley as a first-round pick. He didn't go till the middle rounds. And he's now the backup quarterback, ironically enough, with the Buffalo Bills. Uh, and the backup quarterback, certainly in, to Josh Allen, a guy with a lot more of what the NFL looks for. And so I think when people saw that, I mean, to, to be perfectly honest, I, if you had told me, what do you think is more likely to have, be happen? Uh, Jake Fromm to be a top 10 pick or Jake Fromm to go in the fifth round? I would have said in the fifth round. Um, now, I would have thought he would have probably gone in the third round. But not a top 10 pick. I just it just didn't line up that way, especially 
I had come back from the combine and talked to some NFL quarterback coaches who were like, people are trying to say he might be Andy Dalton. He's nowhere near the athlete. He doesn't have the arm, doesn't have the same arm as even as a Kirk Cousins. And so I think there was some skepticism. But having said all that, I think for the people who are going, well, all right, well, Kirby Smart really screwed this up because he had Jacob Eason, who has a much bigger arm, and he has Justin Fields, who blew up at Ohio State this past year. The part that I think that there's twofold on this, and I don't think there's definitely a right or wrong answer, but I think there's context here that um, this doesn't happen in the vacuum, and, and I want to get your thoughts on my points on this. One, Kirby Smart's the one who's at every practice. It's his team, not you know all the people who are draft analysts and everything else, or all the you know all of us who are who are you know playing armchair quarterback on this deal. The second part of it is we don't know to that end. We don't really know what Justin Fields looked like as a true freshman there. I mean, could he have thrown a bunch of picks and and maybe been you know at at a lot more higher highs, but certainly a lot more lower lows. Um, at that time when really Kirby Smart had so much talent around him, you just don't want somebody to kind of just to, to get the uh, get the train off the tracks a little bit. So I think to look at Justin Fields 2019 versus Justin Fields 2018 is a different is a different deal entirely. I didn't want to get into the Jacob Eason thing because I think Jacob Eason's one of those guys who you know I, I, I get why five star people kind of fell for him, but at the same time he wasn't he wasn't a great college quarterback last year at all or even close to that and we saw him going in the middle rounds as well but to get back to the point about from versus fields i'm curious what do you think of that i think there's a lot of revisionist history there it's easy to look back now that that um justin fields had the season that he did and to say oh yeah of course he should have made that choice in 2018 jake from was the f- number five rated passer in the entire country behind Tua, Kyler Murray, Will Greer, and Dwayne Haskins. In the SEC championship game that year against Alabama, uh, the game where you know Georgia probably should have won, Alabama came back with Jalen Hurts. Against a very good Alabama defense, Jake Fromm went 25 of 39 for 301 yards, three touchdowns, and no interceptions. He was good. Kirby's, you can get on Kirby Smart if you want. A hundred out of a hundred coaches would have done the same exact thing. You could not justify pulling him for a freshman who hadn't played yet. So um, now I think after the big regression, his junior year, you know, it's basically worst possible circumstance. Fields goes on to have this tremendous year at Ohio State, and meanwhile, Fromm regresses from a sixty-seven percent passer to a sixty percent passer from. 9.0 yards per attempt to 7.4 yards per attempt. And now you're sitting there going, gosh, he, Kirby really blew that. But at the time, you have to put yourself in the mindset of what the situation was at the time. Of course he wouldn't have made that 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 switch. Uh, Jake Fromm was a really, really good quarterback who had won you a lot of games at that point. Let's also add some context to this. He had, rec- he had receivers leave. He still had DeAndre Swift and a loaded offensive line in front of him. So it's not like he was all of a sudden, you know, left with the talent that uh, that Josh Allen had his last year at Wyoming, though. I mean, there were still yeah, I mean, I think there were still really good players there. It's just, um, 
you know, I, I think that again, this this doesn't have to be all or you know everything on one side of it. I, I think there needs to be context to it. I was just kind of surprised with people going, "Kirby Smart's an idiot. Why didn't he play that guy?" Well, if that guy was that much better, he would have played that guy in 2018. If you want to blame Kirby Smart for something, I would say it would have been his choice of offensive coordinator last year in an offense that did have, as the draft ended up showing an absolutely loaded offensive line deandre swift who was i believe the first running back taken right no clyde was the first one of the first running backs taken uh and was just wasn't a very good offense you know regardless of what was happening with Fromm and the receivers they they had pieces there and they never really put it together so um i do i will say this from day one from the time he got the job kirby smart always said his ideal quarterback is somebody like Deshaun Watson who can who can use his feet and who you can do all these things with. And it's just worked out where his first four seasons, he's had more of a traditional dropback passer who can't really run. So there's a lot of riding on Jamie Newman, a guy who is probably – the hype is probably exceeding the reality right now, but he could be very good. But, but most importantly, he is that quarterback. He fits that mold of what Kirby has always wanted to have back there. All right, I want to ask you something now. Uh, our colleague Matt Fortuna had an interesting column. It's actually something, a little bit of what we touched on in the group text story that me, you, and Andy worked on on Friday night. And, or I guess it was Thursday night. Um, and that is the boatload of NFL talent that Ohio State has put in again to the NFL. And really over a four or five year stretch, it has been, it is matched up with anybody. I mean, we're talking about a ridiculous amount of not just first rounders, but top 15 picks. And Matt's column was, did Urban Meyer underachieve there? Uh, it's a hard place to get to when you look at what Urban Meyer's one loss record is. But I think, it, you know, you drill down a little bit in there in the last, in his last four years, we'll take out this past year when Ryan Day is the head coach, but they didn't get to the, they didn't even get to a title game. Ridiculous amount of talent. Where do you stand on? uh, I mean, where do you fall on, on that question? Yeah. I mean, I'm always hesitant to hold somebody to the standard of if you didn't reach the national title game, then you underachieved because that is such, such a ridiculously high bar. And there's a lot of, you know, luck and, and bad breaks that, good or bad breaks that go into it. But the one thing you can't dispute is both the 2017 team and the 2018 team had an inexplicable blowout loss to somebody that they were much more talented than. And they were those were unranked teams. One was, as you mentioned, by 31 to unranked Iowa at unranked Iowa. And then the other one was by 29 at unranked Purdue. Think about who was on those Ohio State defenses. Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, Nick Bosa, uh, and on and on and on. And somehow they gave up 55 points to Iowa and 49 points to Purdue. So if you want to say he underachieved, it's that they had no business losing those games in the clunker fashion that they did. And then that one loss ended up being the difference. The 2017 team, if you remember, that came down to the fourth spot came down to an Alabama team that didn't make the SEC title game and an Ohio State team that had two losses. So if Ohio State is 12 and one instead of 11 and two, they're going to the playoff. Maybe they do win a national title. But then we're, you know, in that case, you are talking about extra margin for error because I think that's one thing a lot of people forget. They actually lost pretty, you know, 
handily to Baker Mayfield in Oklahoma at home that year too. So it wasn't like they, I, I actually forgot about that. You know, when, when uh, I was reading Matt's column, I forgot that there was another loss in there. So it's like you have margin for, you have some margin for error. I just think that the, the thing that I think, you know, is, is kind of an eye opener is when you lose like that, it's like, do you miss the playoff? Um, there was the year when they lost to Penn State, and that wasn't a great Penn State team, but, you know, they at that point, but they lost. And then they did get in the playoff and, and got absolutely throttled by Clemson. So I think what, you know, when you kind of look back is, man, there are some, not just, and that team, Clemson team was obviously terrific, but when you have these, all that talent, you have these huge blowout losses, I mean, that's two 31-point losses and a 29-point loss. The other year I went back, and it's a game that I didn't get to see. I remember you and I talked about it right after because it was the Ezekiel Elliott game where it's like they lose at home to Michigan State. Michigan State was a good team. I think they lost by a field goal. Um, And that team was so talented. But I think what was – and I went back after, you know, as we were preparing for this, I looked and I was like, What's what was surprised me was when you looked at the 2015 team as good as they were, that was the first ranked opponent they played all season, and that was almost at the end of the year. I mean, you look at it, it was like they opened Virginia Tech, that was basically a 500 Virginia Tech team, and then it was a bunch of unranked teams from there. So it's it's an interesting kind of kind of window into it, and I guess I'll stick with my my comment that I wrote about on Sunday, which is. It just kind of shows you how hard it is to win a national title in college football. I mean, it's much harder now than it I think it was 10 years ago because you are facing so many good teams and it's kind of a, a winnowing away process. And to see how talented these teams were, I mean, I don't know how. It's, it's hard to say. I don't know. I mean, where do you draw the line on this, right? You know, it's like... Should Jimmy Johnson have won more national titles when he was at Miami? I mean, do you, you know, it's like, I think it's easy to, to, to look back at it. It's just hard to kind of to land on this. I'm sure Ohio State fans probably, on one hand, you know, you're thrilled that or as big as the brand of, as Ohio State football was, Urban Meyer elevated it quite a bit, you know, and, there, and he left the infrastructure. So not to say Ryan Day wouldn't be able to do anything if he was a head coach, but I think he's made it really a ripe situation for Ryan Day to go into. And I, I we talked about this the other day. I think on the last episode, I had asked you over under on how many national titles will Ryan Day win there. Um, and I think I said, I think I said it'd be more than one and a half, 1.5 and you said less. And I'm guessing the reason why you said less is probably because of this very subject of you can have a ton of talent, but for whatever reason, it probably won't land the way you think it's going to land on paper. Well, let's let's lower the bar just a bit from national championships to playoff appearances, right? I think we would agree, based on NFL draft results, that Ohio State has been just as talented over the last five or six years as Alabama and Clemson. Alabama and Clemson made five straight playoffs. Granted, Clemson's doing it out of the ACC easier path probably than Ohio State has, although some of those years the ACC was actually pretty good. Um, can I ask? Can I ask one point on the Clemson mm-hmm. piece? Uh, to me, Clemson though has has had elite quarterback play throughout this stretch. Where I'm not sure Ohio. I, I mean, look, JT Barrett was a really good player. 
I don't think JT Barrett was, he wasn't anything like Deshaun Watson. Well, maybe that was part of it. Maybe, in terms of, you know, you want to talk about benching Jake Fromm for Justin Fields. Maybe, maybe Urban had too long a leash for JT Barrett when he had Dwayne Haskins and Joe, Joe Burrow sitting there. All I, all I would say is with the talent Ohio State had, 2015 to 2018, four-season span, they made one playoff, and in that one playoff, they got drilled by Clemson. I think it's fair to say, if, if you're going to get laud Urban Meyer, which, look, on the first night, how many times, one of the big storylines was that he recruited the top three picks in the draft, which is insane. So if you're going to laud him for his recruiting, then I think it's fair to hold him accountable for what you actually did with those recruits. And I think it's fair to say they should have had more than one playoff appearance and it was a really awful playoff appearance from 2015 to 2018 Hmm. all right uh anything more on this subject (laughs) i think that one thing one takeaway for me is that again like i said earlier when the when you're in this in the season in real time it's a really hard to and things are lsu we knew lsu would be pretty good going into last year they were preseason top five team i believe we obviously would have never predicted they would go 15 and 0 um and so much of the attention obviously was about joe burrow and this offense that joe brady brought in and i don't think i truly appreciated just how talented that team was as a whole we talked a lot about you know greatest season that a team has had in terms of the the caliber of opponents they beat but you know i don't think it took until the draft to fully say oh my gosh 14 draft picks tied for a rec- the record five in the first round this team definitely goes down in the annals of the most talented, most loaded teams that anybody's ever put out there. Um, so, and by the way, the 14 draft picks, one of them was the long snapper. I thought Thaddeus Moss would be drafted. He wasn't. He was a really big part of their run as well. So it's it's for all the great he has some. He had some uh, some medical issues. So I, I think it was hard for a tight end who's not six two yeah. and isn't run that that's great and also has some has been uh, banged up pretty good to you know to get to get drafted but i you know i do think that towards you know you'd mentioned ari's stars matter point i don't think anybody already disagrees with the stars matter part i think the part that and this to me i'm glad you brought up the lsu thing is what they showed was that development really matters too and i think it's not like it's not one or the other necessarily, but when you look, I mean, the guys they had drafted, the only one who was a huge recruit for them at the time was Caleb on Chason. Like the other guys, nobody was talking about Justin Jefferson when he came in there. I mean, what was he like the 150th rated receiver in this class? Nobody was talking about Clyde. He was a three-star guy. You know, one site had Joe Burrow as a three, one site had him as a four-star. Obviously he wasn't, you know, a hyped guy uh, when he had, when Ohio State didn't play him. You know, there was a lot of that. Patrick Queen, who who I don't, you know, when you mentioned who saw 15-0 coming, Patrick Queen was not a guy, I mean, it, like, that anybody was expecting to be a first-round pick in, in late September, maybe not even in October. He just kind of kept getting better, and I think the thing, and I will be writing a lot about this at some point, the thing that I, I think is crucial with this is, what happens Monday through Friday in college football programs and how they practice and how they develop players. And I think Patrick Queen and Justin Jefferson are probably the two best examples of the first round of, of how that happens. 
one guy was one guy was a good recruit one guy was a really low rated recruit and they both blossomed and so i mean it's it's significant you know i think that the development piece is the part that i think often gets glossed over in the star system it doesn't mean that the star system isn't a reality because it is but i just think that's the part that that i think people maybe lose sight of sometimes because it's a little harder to it's more nuanced you know i mean i do it too it's like this guy was a four star that guy was a five star it's it's easier to tweet it you know in that context but i think it's harder to get into like how guys develop and and what they become development is is huge if development didn't matter usc would be a lot better than they are every year texas would be a lot better than they are every year just because you get the guys with the stars doesn't it doesn't you know grant you automatic entrance to the playoff um and so yeah it's what you do with that it's probably the most impressive thing about alabama's dynasty is that yeah he brings in number one or number two class every year he's never had in that entire run he's never had a class where none of the guys panned out or or everybody transferred which almost every other program has at some point so he gets them in there and they develop them and guys go to the nfl um, it, it's everything coming together. Uh, that's a very hard thing to pull off. Uh, and the stars matter thing is more for, you know, I can remember it used to be that they would, they would hold the draft and then somebody would put, send out a tweet or put out a story. That's like, look at all these two stars and three stars that got drafted. See, they don't, the guy recruiting guys don't know what they're talking about. And it's like, well, come on the percent, you know, the percentage chance or it's like something like 1.8% of the class is five stars or four stars. And yet they end up representing the majority of the guys that get drafted. There's a thousand or something players who are three stars. So of course there's going to be a bunch of three stars that end up making it into the draft just by sheer numbers. So it is, a, a st- and I give a lot of credit to the guys at 24-7 and Rivals and ESPN because I do think recruiting rankings have become much more accurate over the years. I mean, when I first started doing this, the hit rate was maybe 50% or less because they didn't have all these camps and they didn't have access to great. Right. They weren't getting to see them together. Yeah. At the same and they didn't, and you yeah, didn't have access to all the footage it. you do now. So you didn't have a, these guys, you know, Tom Lemming was a one man show going around to high schools, interviewing these kids. Like 247 has a entire network of people devoted to this. So the recruiting rankings are becoming more accurate. There's a higher hit rate. You see that when they make it to the NFL. Um, there's always going to be exceptions. There's always going to be outliers. Tom Brady, obviously the definitive example. Um, but I don't know if Tom Brady's the definitive example because I, I mean, if Tom Brady went to Michigan, he probably wasn't a low-rated recruit. They just wasn't a star system then. Sure. Example. Okay. I, I think I'm. <laughs> that's I the, say that's the, the wrong. He's the example. ultimate example of you can make it from the sixth round. Uh, on the front end, JJ uh, Watt, right, was a was a nothing recruit. Like, there's always going to be outliers like that because it's impossible to nail every you know when you're 17 years old to nail exactly how they're going to develop Uh, but the hit rate we're starting to see now among these guys who come in with all the acclaim and end up being high draft picks is is pretty remarkable back to the podcast in a second but first a word about our sponsor the black tux the black tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo 
for their big day. Did you know the black tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Quote, go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. Ouch. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy we were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to remember for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code CFB10. That's the blacktux.com code CFB10 for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Why don't we turn our attention, Bruce, to the players who will be back in college in 2020. Uh, on Tuesday, I released my spring top 25. It was a little different this year because usually the reason you put it out the last week of April is that everybody's completed spring practice and we... And I used some of the insights we gleaned from that to update the rankings I did the, the morning after the title game. Obviously, we did not have So why did you put it out this time, Stu? <laughs> because people love rankings. <laughs> uh, well, remember, the, 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 the one that went up the morning after the national title game, we didn't yet know who was going to turn pro. We didn't yet. There, were, there have been head coaching changes that happened after that game, like Matt Rule leaving Baylor. Certainly lots and lots of coordinator changes transfer portal guys um i'm not saying that it drastically altered the lineup by any means but you know there's you you have more info certainly than you did uh the morning after the national title game so the hardest team to rank is the one we just talked about a little while ago lsu because on the one hand they just had this dominant season and we know they're a program that recruits well so there's gonna, they're going to be able to reload. But on the other hand, 14 guys is a lot and uh, to replace. 14 guys that were drafted, some of those very, very high draft picks, most notably Joe Burrow. And generally speaking, and I look back at some of the teams that had a huge number like that, almost always there's a drop-off the next year. It might not be a severe drop-off. So the question is, okay, I had them number five, I believe, uh, the day after the title game. Uh, I dropped them to eight now. It's not like something bad happened between then and now. They did have some, you know, we didn't know who his new coordinator was going to be yet at that point. But that didn't really factor into it. I just find it hard to believe you can lose that many guys and come back the next year and, and win the SEC again. What surprised me a little bit when I looked at it, I was like, wait, you dropped them down. They actually, like... Jabril Cox was considered by a lot of people as the top uh, grad transfer linebacker in the country, and he ended up going there, which is which is interesting to see how he'll fit in going from North Dakota State, which obviously wins national titles every year, to LSU, which just won one. So I was a little surprised that okay, that probably the the one area on their defense that was a question mark they shored up from the time you'd signed there. But I don't disagree with you having them eight. I mean, to me, the biggest loss is going to be Joe Burrow. I mean, he had the greatest quarterback anybody, the greatest quarterback season anybody's ever had in college football. And, you know, I know Miles Brennan has a strong arm. That's about all we know, right? And so now I know he has good receivers. Jamar Chase is the best receiver. He would have been the best receiver in this draft. He's back. But they got to replace 
basically three and a half starters on the offensive line, and they got to replace Clyde. That's a lot, and so uh, to have them eighth, I don't think that's I don't think that's like eye popping. I was a little, like I said, I was a little surprised that you you dropped them um, just in the time from that, but I think that could probably be as much relative to yeah. It wasn't because of anything that yeah. It wasn't because of anything that happened since January. Uh, and you're right, that was a big pickup uh, in terms of Jabril Cox. Uh, just recent, you know, you. You, you, that morning that it went up, and I'll, I'll actually, for being honest, I wrote it the day of the game. Um, it's you know you, you just get a little bit of distance from that, and I mean it could be a very wide range of possibilities. Probably more than most teams in there, the the ceiling and the floor is probably a pretty wide range. They wouldn't be it wouldn't be shocking to me if first of all I think they're still going to be really good on defense. I think you would agree, especially up front on that defensive line. You've got probably the best cornerback in the country and Derek Stingley. You've got Jacoby Stevens coming back. They should be really good still on defense. It's the Joe Burrow factor. It's the offensive line. It's replacing Clyde. Like, those are big questions. But if they can answer those questions, then maybe they're right back in the playoff. And if they can't, maybe they're number eight. Maybe they go seven and five. Like, there's just such a wide range of possibilities with them. The the, the thing that probably surprised me the most about your updated one was – you really jumped Texas A&M high. You moved them up seven spots. So what changed or what sunk into you that made you feel like I'm I'm going all in on the Aggies pretty much? Well, for one thing, I'm a big believer in Bill Connolly's um, rankings, as you know. And it, sometimes we default to, um, okay, they, they had this record last year and they returned this many starters, therefore... I'm going to slot them here. But obviously there's more to the story in terms of how much talent do they have. And I think A&M last year might have had a much different record if they didn't have to play Alabama, LSU, uh, Clemson, and Georgia, which is just an insane, you know, insane schedule, and their record reflected it. Um, Bill's preseason SP plus rankings, Texas A&M is 10th. Um, I don't have them quite that high, obviously. My, I will continue to be a little bit concerned. The, the thing that holds me back from saying, okay, year three, here comes Jimbo's big playoff run, is that Kellen Mond, to me, has a ceiling. He's a fourth-year starter, and it's usually good to have a four-year starter quarterback. Uh, but he's just never put it all together. He's always been a little bit inconsistent. But across the board, I mean, I think their defense could be really good. Uh, you're going to start to – I think you're going to start to see some of those four-star guys that – that Jimbo recruited who have been fairly young who are going to take on bigger roles Isaiah Spiller had a great season obviously running back as a freshman so I have him 15 I don't I think that's probably uh not too high and not too low one other team you went the other way on and that was Tennessee you had Tennessee dropping down four spots was it something David Ubbins said (laughs) to you that that got you a little the red ass a lot of this is just you get a little bit of separation from the season Tennessee was a hot team at the end of last year. Six-game winning streak, played great defense down the stretch, um, and and I think people maybe got a little bit too bullish. Uh, I think low top 25 is probably the right spot for them. At the end of the day, it's still Jarek Garantano as the quarterback. Jeremy Pruitt still clearly doesn't have that much confidence in him. He's still, you know, they, they, I think they maybe got one spring practice in, but whatever his priest 
press conference he had at the beginning, it was definitely like, yep, still open competition at quarterback. Like, what more does this guy have to do? So um, I thought Cade Mays was a big pickup on the offensive line from Georgia. Uh, I think the offensive line, which was so bad when he first got there, is now quietly one of Tennessee's becoming one of their their biggest strengths. Um, So there's a little bit of a prove-it. Uh, aspect to that, you know, they did end the season on a six-game winning streak, but that was not the uh, that was not the the hard part of their schedule, right? That was once they got through all of the best teams on their schedule. It's a little bit of a still have to prove it uh, notion to them, uh, but I think you know just having them in the top twenty-five coming off an eight and five season, with that included a loss to Georgia State, is a pretty good should should still be considered a good uh, milestone for that program. What do you think would be a acceptable season for them this year? It's year three. I, I mean, I think their offensive line should be as good as as good as just about anybody's at this point now. In the at least by the end of the year, I mean, with as much young talent as they they have accrued in there up front. I mean, do you think you think nine wins is possible? Well, he got to eight last year, so yeah, certainly nine wins is possible. I think this year for Jeremy Pruitt's going to be less about what's your record and more about can you show that you can play and beat some of the upper echelon opponents because they play at Oklahoma in week two. Florida will definitely be a preseason top ten. You get them in week four. Obviously Alabama, who they play every year, and Georgia. Can they beat at least one of those teams? Because if not... You can go nine and four till the end of time, beating Missouri and South Carolina and Arkansas and Kentucky. Can you actually show that you're on the level of those upper tier teams? Okay, you had a question for me. Uh, yeah, so remember a few years ago when Washington was everybody's? They were like seven and six the year before, and and somehow we all decided they were the trendy pick the next year, and then they actually delivered on it. Will be this year, not necessarily in the playoff though. UNC, um, seven and six last season in Mac Brown's first year, but just could have been even better than that. They had so many last second overtime losses, including obviously to Clemson. Sam Howell was a revelation as a freshman quarterback. So I have them all the way up now at 16. Uh, I have seen some people have them even higher. And I'm curious if you think, you know, 10 starters back on offense, do you think that we are getting ahead of ourselves on UNC or this is justified? No, I think it's justified for the reasons you said. Um, I think that Mac put together a good staff. I think they closed fast in his first recruiting class. Obviously with Sam was, was a, was a heck of a pickup. Um, the schedule to me is interesting in that. And uh, full disclosure, when we, when I saw your, your top 25 this morning, that was one of the first things I looked up and it's a tricky start. It is at UCF, and then they play Auburn. I mean, that's not that's not fun. If they get through there at two and zero, then they have a real chance to. Then the sky's the limit. Yeah, because there's no Clemson on there, at least in the regular season. You know, just looking at it, you get you get Virginia Tech at home. You don't have to go to Blacksburg, which is not a fun place to play. I just think it it sets up really well. The question is, you know, do they get through the first couple of games? unscathed um it's gonna be really i think that's gonna be a fun team to watch because of the system they run because of the quarterback they have i think because of the 
I don't even know if it's fair to call it the rebirth of Mac Brown, but no doubt, I mean, at the end, it wasn't like things got stale at Texas. Of course they did. Um, so I think you have them in the right spot. I mean, that's I would have had them somewhere around there. Uh, the question is going to be, you know, are they good enough up front to, like, I think Auburn's a really good test for them. I, th- I think if they win that game, uh, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be who are going to be, you know, kind of piling on that bandwagon that, at that point. Well, and I've got UCF in my top twenty-five. I think they can be pretty good. So, I think the key for the the goal there is to split those games, not not start out zero and two, because nothing can deflate uh, pre all the excitement and preseason hype, and then starting zero and two. If you can split those games, then you get into James Madison, Georgia Tech. Virginia without Bryce Perkins, Virginia Tech, who, by the way, at least uh, as of our recording, this the the story we're talking about went up Tuesday morning on the Athletic, and of course it's already got like 150 comments. Virginia Tech is the team that the, that has the most complaints about not being included. Um, at Duke, at Miami, UConn, that's a win. Pitt at BC, NC State. It's a very manageable schedule once you get past those first two games. UConn, that's a win, man. It's like you look down at that program. It's just like I mean, they barely—they're barely fielding a football team at this point. It's—it's. It's, uh, I feel bad. I feel bad for Randy Edsel, but it, uh, it is what it is. Um, la- and, and then the last one point I did want to make is about UCF and those. Group. There's, there's a lot of intriguing Group of Five teams. Um, I think, generally speaking, they you don't you don't usually have them as high in the preseason as maybe they may end up at the end, just because. We tend to, if you're a group of five team and you go eleven and one, you're going to be ranked, right? Like there's just certain records where you're gonna you're gonna be ranked. And you're going to get up to a certain point, but when you're looking in the preseason, you know chances are Michigan is not going to have the same record as whoever ends up being the the top couple group of five teams. But that doesn't mean I necessarily automatically slot them ahead of them now. But AA top of the AAC. Do you have an initial lean between these three teams who would who might win the AAC this year? Cincinnati, Memphis, and UCF. I'm going to go with Memphis. I think they okay. have scary skilled talent, uh, a, a super experienced quarterback in Brady White. Um, yeah, to me, they're they are the safest pick because of all the speed they have. Not to say UCF doesn't have a lot of speed because they do, but. To me, I would I would say Memphis out of that three. Are you disagreeing with me? I mean, it's very close. I have Cincinnati as the high. I have Cincinnati twenty, Memphis the hometown 20. pick, as it were. <laughs> I mean, Cincinnati's been right on the cusp now. They won eleven games. Luke Fickle's past two years. Um, I think they're going to be really good on defense, and there's just not there's not much separation there to me. And then UCF, everybody's just like, okay, well, we forgot about. We're done with them, right, after they uh, finally started losing some games. Well, three losses last year by a combined seven points. Dylan Gabriel was great as a freshman quarterback. They've still got plenty of skill talent up there. Um, And this I did not realize until I was doing the research. If I was to tell you, where do you think UCF finished nationally in defense last year? What would you say? I would say, well, what category are you using? Yards per play allowed. I would say probably the way you're framing it, I would say like 21st. Mm-hmm. Five. 
Randy Shannon's defense, number five in the country last season in yards per play allowed. Did not see that coming. Uh, you know, you think UCF under Scott Frost and in that first year under Hypo, you think just high-scoring games, shootouts, all about the offense. They actually got good on defense, too. So, I mean, it may be that UCF ends up being back at the top of that conference and being the, the group of five team. We'll see. And then, obviously, in the just-missed Boise State, Appalachian State. Oh, yeah, also heard from a lot of angry Appalachian State fans who think they should be ranked. So, um, just a lot of interesting possibilities with the group of five teams. Back to the podcast in a minute after this message from DoorDash. There are thousands of restaurants open for delivery on DoorDash that need your patronage now more than ever. Support your favorite restaurants on DoorDash. You've counted on restaurants, now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. Many of your local favorite restaurants are still open for delivery. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local restaurant, and your food will be left at your door. DoorDash deliveries are now contactless to keep communities we operate in safe. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more and zero delivery fees for their first month when you download the DoorDash app and enter code AUDIBLE. That's $5 off your first order and zero delivery fees for a month when you download download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code AUDIBLE. Don't forget, that's code AUDIBLE for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Mailbag time. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And uh, this has been a coronavirus-free podcast at this point, but uh, that's not going to be the case in the mailbag because that's what some of the people wanted to ask about. Why don't you ask that first one? Uh, Grant in Birmingham, Bruce and Stu, big fan of the pod. In the last few weeks, you both have talked about how coordinated the effort between the Power Five conferences has been so far. I've also heard from multiple outlets that basically in all five, if all five leagues can't play, no one will play. While that may sound great in April, I personally believe that is a naive opinion. With the amount of revenue football provides and the likelihood that multiple sports will likely be cut without a season, why would the SEC let West Coast governors potentially hold up the, mil- the hundreds of millions in TV revenue the league could make by holding at the very least a normal conference slate if it's deemed safe to play in the South. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're looking, if you're judging it on the way things are going right now, the South is definitely the part of the country that is moving the fastest to open back up. Uh, Pac-12 territory, our territory that we're in right now is not. And so I I think what he's talking about, we have no idea how it's all going to play out, obviously, but if you could see that that tension happening for sure if it gets to be august and the sec is ready to go like we're ready to report to training camp and start our season and whether it's the pac-12 or the acc who other ones are like absolutely not um you could see that tension being there for sure i don't think they would well first of all i think we can agree that conferences within themselves are going to stay united so even if clemson and florida state and the North Carolina schools are good to go, but Boston College is not. I don't think they're just going to tell Boston College you're out for this season, right? So it is still going to be conference by conference. I think that it's important to them to um, – the college football playoff is very important, and all these conferences are part of it, and you want to ideally have a season that, that still includes that. So I could see them saying, okay, if if some are ready and some aren't, 
then we can't start in the fall. We've got to delay this thing to January or February or whatever it may be. But at that point, if it's still split like this, then yeah, there's no way a conference that's ready to go is going to sacrifice their entire season because somebody else isn't ready. That's where it could get real ugly, I think. Let's just all knock on wood and hope that there have been enough advances and treatments and tests and everything else that that that's just not an issue uh, by the time that decision would have to be made. Well, Grant used the words naive opinion. I have something that I feel like is probably maybe very simple or naive to to answer that, which is if some of these states, which there's a, a handful of that are in the SEC footprint, at least right now, Louisiana is not one of them, but but uh, if they are opening up and it's still late April, early uh, early May, I think we're going to we'll probably know have a better window on what happens when those states open up a month from now and into June to see was there was there significant increase not just because there's testing more testing but is there a significant increase in death tolls and if there if there is more of an outbreak of that um, I think people will I think they're constantly going to be revisiting what's going on and their approach to things. But I think if there isn't a, a dramatic increase in the numbers and the cases spreading and, and as morbid as this is and the death tolls going up, then I think it will probably get more momentum to do that, uh, uh, you know, in other parts of the country. I mean, is, do you think that's a naive, naive opinion on my part to think that? No, I think, I think the naive part is if people are working under the assumption that once we open things back up it'll just be smooth sailing from there uh, everything that every health expert that i read says is be prepared to the, the, the analogy they've used is like a summer of you know hitting the gas and then pumping the brake and then hitting the gas again and pumping the brake you know you're just going to have to be constantly monitoring uh, new case levels hospital hospitalizations and if things start to peak back up, then you got to start closing things back down or, or reining them back in. And um, you're right. I think by the time it comes time for these guys to actually make these decisions, you're going to know, like, can, is it possible to do things like hold a college football season and not have a huge spike in cases? You're going to get little windows into that. I, I know that uh, I've seen a lot of pictures in the last few days of people eating at Waffle Houses in the South. Like, Waffle House is, a, is open for business. Um and Waffle House and, and, and barber shops and all these other places that are opening up will be a little bit of a, a, a test case into whether we can continue forward. So, Speaking of test cases, I have a question for you. Have you, in the last couple of weeks, tried to trim your own hair? <laughs> well, I actually had to deal with this almost as soon as we went into quarantine because I had made the mistake of, of putting off my last uh, normal haircut too long so i think it was literally the first week of of quarantine or the second weekend maybe i got on amazon i ordered the clippers and the and the scissors my wife watched a youtube video and she cut my hair and it was so long ago now that we're i'm it's time for round two like i, I need another haircut what have you been doing uh you know, I wear a lot of baseball hats <laughs> at this point, so it's kind of thick and bushy. I mean, 
So in your case, are you getting kind of like, when it grows long, does it look a little like John C. Riley kind of curly and bushy kind of stuff? Or what, what do you get? She did a pretty good job. The, 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 the sides are a little bit growing out a little bit weird, but at the end of the day, like, who cares? Nobody's seeing you, you know, like, if, 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 if I look a little scruffy on one of these Zoom calls we do, like, is that the end of the world? Um, so that's why it's been a little bit amusing to me that one of the, with Georgia, one of the first things to open back up was barber shops and people are running because they, they haven't been able to get a haircut and they're running into the barber shops. Um, take it from me. It can be done at home, but you do need a spouse who's willing to participate. All right, Stu, this next question is from Eric in London. Stu, you discuss the role or lack thereof of the NCAA in college football postseason and how that has evolved over the years. It would be interesting to hear or to read about the evolution and why the NCAA was left outside the football structure but was so integral to the basketball postseason structure. I'm a Notre Dame alum, so I recall when Andy broke away from the others with their TV deal, but I thought the rights were already managed collectively outside the NCA. Thanks for giving me an hour every week where COVID isn't the top thing on my mind. Thank you, Eric, for sending that in, and we are flattered by you taking an hour of your time away from all and this. we apologize for putting it back on your i know that last i know i thought we were going to get a covid free <laughs> podcast too yeah almost right. almost um to the, to address the second part first you know the 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 single uh most important thing that happened in the history of college sports tv was the 1984 supreme court decision uh before that it was oklahoma and georgia that sued the ncaa before that the ncaa held all of the rights to college football TV, they decided, these schools decided that they weren't realizing their full value because the NCAA had so many restrictions on it. So they sued and they went to the Supreme Court and they won. And basically that's the moment when all of the power shifted from the NCAA to the conferences because now they held their own TV rights. Um, and when Notre Dame, the thing he's referring to with Notre Dame was at first they actually did still have a bit of a coalition the college football associations several of the conferences would broker a deal together several conferences and independence notre dame was the first one to break free and make their own deal and it kind of dissolved from there in terms of the postseason i mean the best thing i can say is that it really it's it's this is really strange to think about now but the postseason was kind of an afterthought for many many decades it was bowl games were not there was no formal national championship race. Bowl games were just kind of a fun thing to go do at the end of the season. And so I don't think there was ever any real thought to, well, we got to make sure we, we keep control of this. Um, and then, of course, as the thing evolved and you end up in the what was eventually the Bowl Alliance and the BCS, the conferences held the rights to that. And why were they going to give that up? Um, you know, whereas the NCAA basketball tournament was never not in the NCAA's hands and and frankly, because it involves whatever it is now, 31, 32 conferences, it was never realistic that the conferences themselves would run that. So, um, hey, it's part of what makes college football so unique. Nobody's in charge. Uh, thanks to Pete Thamel on his Yahoo podcast. He, he did a big plug recently for Bulls, Poles, and Tattered Souls, and in particular, the line I had in there about the first thing you need to know about college football is that nobody's in charge. Let's end with this one. Mike Buckland in Savage, Minnesota. Well, most of us listen to your podcast with podcasts wishing we had jobs in sports. I think you guys can set the record straight. It would be interesting, very interesting for listeners to hear about your daily routine, in season or out, highs and lows. Maybe, maybe it'll all make us appreciate 
our office jobs a little more. My routine is very boring. I'm more interested to hear yours, especially in season when you are juggling being a writer and a sideline reporter. Yeah. Uh, so my, I'll start on the come home Sundays. I usually try to get the first flight out of where I've been so I can come home. My son either has like a baseball, soccer, football game or something on Sunday. So I usually try to get home. I don't know if I can before noon. And then, you know, I used to do one of those columns that Andy Andy does and a bunch of our other colleagues do where you're inter, you know calling up coaches and different things and honestly I don't do that anymore so it's really just kind of try to get connected to my family for half the day and then Monday comes and I got a bunch of conference calls we usually tape the podcast uh, I have two separate uh, conference calls that are Fox Sports related beyond that and then I'm on the phone trying to line up stuff either for a whatever I might be writing or usually for whatever game we have and start to reach out to people. And then uh, Tuesday is one of those kind of catch up days where you're just basically trying to, to get a hold of and stay up on the rest of the sport as best I can. Uh, Wednesday, we may have more conference calls. I usually go into Fox, um, which is like a I don't know, 45 minute drive from my house and I'll tape some things or do a Big Ten network hit and then come back usually by three or four o'clock. And uh, one thing I, I should mention is I usually try to at least take my kids into into school Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and if possible, Thursday. And on Thursday mornings, I usually fly out to whatever game we have. And that's, you know, usually it's half, half a day traveling and then kind of recircle with, with uh, our TV crew, which is, a lot of those guys are LA based, not all of them, probably a, a third of them. So we'll travel together and then go and maybe get to the town we're in and maybe get a good dinner and go out and have some drinks. And then Friday we have all day meetings wherever we're at and usually end up taping something uh, for whatever Saturday shows and whatnot and maybe have a production dinner on Friday night. And then, you know, it's game day as much as it varies for me depending on what time of what time of kickoff we have but the one thing as I'm kind of going rolling through this in my head is I really um you know really gotten affinity for and close to our tv crew because you're with these guys for what feels almost like half the year and it's every week and it's half the week every every week and so when you travel together and when you eat a lot of meals together and you're just around um it's it's interesting just because you know, you're just in the car all the time. You're you pretty much do almost everything with the same, same, you know, half dozen people, and then you see the the extended crew even beyond that. So um, it's something I really miss this time of year, especially in the wake of all this. But um, you know, it's 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 a little bit of a juggling act, just because as you know, you're you're doing as much as you can to to try to stay connected and get people on the phone, and just when you're trying to trying to be a parent at the same time and it's uh challenging not hard but it's it can be just challenging just because you feel like there's not enough hours in the day and now fast forward to this you know i mean i try to be really thankful for having all the time around our kids now that i do so that part has been that part has been uh something i am gonna i am not gonna take for granted so you know, when you mentioned the, the team dinners and stuff, 
um, I think that's probably one of the things I've missed the most, or certainly when I think about, you know, hopefully this doesn't happen, but um, that there might not be, we might not be traveling to games this fall, is those nights out on the road the night before, um, gathering a group together for a really good dinner. Um, that it's not it's something I never would have thought to take that you could take for granted, but right now um, it's very hard to picture going into any restaurant, uh, much less getting on an airplane and going somewhere to do that. Well, let me um, ask you. That. Let me ask you on that because because I think this is something that kind of ties in to what Mike said, and the, the the word that comes out of that is camaraderie, and I think that's something that you know you're somebody who works from home. Um, and I know you would go to a Starbucks or wherever, coffee bean or wherever you would work from normally, but when things are normal. But I, I am curious as to how much, when we get back to normal, about where the camaraderie and, and distance, you know, the term social distancing and everything else is kind of takes on its own meaning on this stuff. But how much, like how soon we'll get back to whatever we knew as normal, not just that businesses will open and all that stuff, but just about some of those other things that, you know, people are gotten probably used to doing a lot of stuff remotely, whether it's Zoom calls or Skype calls or however they're doing it. Not to get completely off topic here, but, but one thing I, I do start to increasingly think is that companies, this experience is going to cause companies to more embrace working from home in general, right? Like, why are we paying all this money for all this office space when we could have been doing this all over Zoom in the first place? There's some things you have to do obviously in, in person, but, um, I, I think there's going to be more of a, I think there's going to be more and more people whenever this is over that are going to maybe do half the time in the office or half the time at home or something like that. Yeah, no, I, I com- to me, those going on the road, uh, is a big, big source of camaraderie when I'm home. It's more just with the family or maybe you have a, you know, we have friends we ha- will have over for dinner or to swim in the pool or something like that. Um, in terms of what he asked about, in-season looks a lot different than out-of-season for me. In-season is very, it's like, even though it's busier, it's more predictable almost in that I wake up Sunday morning, I write, I spend all day writing forward past the, the long column that goes up on Monday morning. Mondays early in the season are a little bit slower, but then second back end of the season, it's bowl projections, which take a lot of time. Tuesday year-round is the same mailbag. That's a where I'm pretty locked in writing. Uh, we do our picks later in the week, and then the the way it works in the season is my my quote unquote weekend is more uh, Thursday and Friday. Not Friday if I'm traveling to a game, but you know, things slow down then. Whereas off season, it's more of a Monday to Friday job, and it's more off season is probably when I do more of my uh, managerial duties, if you will. I'm on the phone or on Slack with Dan Uthman all day about uh, projects we have coming up, strategy, um, just just all these things that go in, or, or, or with people at our offices in San Francisco about initiatives that are going on. But I'm also, you know, right now I'm reporting a story that's going to go up sometime next week um, that involves a lot of phone calls, Um Obviously, still, like I said, Tuesdays. I'm not so, I don't know. You're one thing you're much better than me with is multitasking. I'm somebody who on Tuesdays, I've got the mailbag due. I'm focused on that. I don't really want to be also trying to place calls or being interrupted for other things, you know? Um, whereas I think you're comfortable making calls for one story, writing another story, writing a book, 
uh, like doing eight things at once. I'm much more of a, this is what I need to focus on today, or this is what I need to focus on for the next four hours. Yeah, it's, de- it's definitely something I've gotten used to. I don't know if I would say I'm that comfortable at it. It's just something I've gotten used to. Um, and look, some stuff falls on the wayside. You know, I'm also the person who takes forever to get expense reports done because I can't like work on something and then all of a sudden, hey, I'm going to spend, you know, an hour going through receipts and inputting them. You know, it's just kind of like I kind of move from one thing to the next thing. And, you know, if I have to juggle, then that's what, you know, when I put the kids to sleep between nine and 11 at night, I may be writing on my own. So, you know, it's just you kind of find the best way how you work. And I I don't think that makes us unique because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are you know, do a lot of juggling acts in their own way. And it's just, you, you know, you just kind of do whatever you can and just kind of adjust from there. And I just feel like that's, um, that becomes your normal. Well, I don't want to, uh, one thing I just absolutely want to make clear and then we're going to hop off is I love my job. I love doing whether it's everything I just described, like not, you know, sometimes you have some quote unquote headaches, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a really fun. It's a really really fun job. I'm sure you feel the same way. I do. Um, I'm grateful for it. I miss it. I'm, I mean, I miss the games. I can't wait for the games to start. And um, you know, I just have such a like. I love it more now than I did 20 years ago, and that was saying something. Yeah, not a lot of people can can say that. So um, it's a really fortunate position to be in. You can send your questions every week to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. Talk about it for years. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.